How you doing? I said, Buddy, good morning, you? good afternoon. What's happening? Good afternoon. So, so, so for today, is it James or Buddy we use? You can use whatever you want. Just don't, I mean, don't make a difference. Just don't call me an MF and we'll be okay. Okay, well, no chance of that. <laughs> it don't matter, it don't matter. Whatever you guys are comfortable with. How are you? You good? I'm great, baby. I can't complain. Well, here you got the uh, boys in the gym. Yes, they're keeping me busy. I got a bunch of guys getting ready for fights. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, maintaining, you know, um, and uh, keeping the guys on their toes. <laughs> What's your focus at the moment? Are you uh, are you working with the younger lads or are you when are you getting ready for Sergey? Yes. Well, we, Sergey's training now. Um, but, yeah, I got a, a young kid fighting for the junior NABF title uh, next Saturday. Who's that? Give him a shout-out. His name is Adam Lopez. All right, cool. We'll keep a lookout. Yes. And um, and right now, um, a couple of little fights in between. But right now, just getting, you know, starting to get Sergey ready for, uh, for Yard. That's how you pronounce his name? Yard. Just yeah, there's no Yard. He's Yard. Okay. Just getting ready for him. Have you got a date that you're working towards? They say late June. But, you know, you actually just tell me, look, this is where you got to be, and that's it. <laughs> so what are you, are you assuming that's going to take place over in Russia? Excuse me, those are the rumors. Yeah. But, again, you just get the man ready. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do you know so about the yard? What's your, uh, what's your take on him? Because Terry, who's on the call with us, is, uh, is quite the yard fan. Well, you know, I mean, I got a couple of guys over in America that, that love him as well. I uh, I just know that, you know, he's a young man who can fight. And um, I look at him as a guy that's just, he's da everybody's dangerous, no matter who you are. If you got one eye, one leg, you're still dangerous. So, you know, we, you know what I mean? So we know he's dangerous. We know that he's someone that we got to take extremely serious. And that's what we're doing. Does Sergey buy into that as well? Does he believe that Yard is dangerous? Because over in the UK, let me give you the, the UK take on it. <clears throat> we don't know how good he is or if he's you know, good at all because he's not for anyone of a live nature, really. Um, and so it's great that we're going to get to see him in that, in that fight with Sergey, but we don't know what his ceiling is. We don't know if he's great or average, and I guess we'll find out that night. But... Is that your view on him, or do you see him as a, a real live threat? He's a, to me, everybody's a live threat. Because you're fighting for all the marbles now. You're fighting, you know, we all dream of becoming a world champion and fighting for the world championship. So everybody's a threat. So, you know I mean? I don't believe in taking anyone lightly. And what kind of fight are you going to prepare him for? Because Yard's so powerful and so squat. And, well, I you mean, is, you, you just you answered it by telling me that he's powerful and squat. We're not. Oh, don't listen to me. I'm terrible. Don't listen to me. Don't base it on that, buddy. We're not gonna. We're not going to stand there and slug with him. That would be quite stupid. You know, the key, <laughs> the key would be to really outbox him. You know. So, buddy, quick question. I think one of the things I noticed now that you're working with Sergey is. He's reverting back to that jab that he's always seemed to have. Like, if you watch some of his amateur fights, 
very, very good Russian one-two merchant. That's what we call them in the UK. And okay. it looks like, you know, I think maybe under John David Jackson, he was trying to give the Americans a bit more of a style they were comfortable with at the expense of maybe what he really believed in. And what I've really liked about watching Kovalev sort of post the defeat to Alvarez is just how that jabs back and you see the effect it has on people. So imagine in this fight, my question to you in this fight is, are you looking to do anything super special or will it just be, you know, old school, back to the fundamentals, win this fight with the basics? Well, if we had two left hands, we'd be hitting them with double jabs all the time. You know what I mean? I mean, at this stage of the game, we keep it basic. You know what I mean? I mean, he's been fighting a long time. Uh, and I think the problem, what happened was he started knocking everybody out. So when you get guys that start knocking everybody out, they get away from what got them there. You know what I mean? And I said to him, listen, what happens if you hit a guy and he don't fall down? Then what do you do? He said, it makes sense, buddy. And then one day he sent me a video of one of his amateur fights. And he's like, boy, this is me. And I'm like, what happened to this guy? Let's go back to this guy and sharpen it up. Be smart. Make it a chess match. You don't got to go in there and make everything a war. You last longer that way. You know what I mean? What do you think to people that say that he's over the hill, Kovalev? You know that old saying, once you get over the hill, you pick up speed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't believe that. <clears throat> I look at, you know, I'm an old school guy. So I look at a fighter's reactions to punches. Most importantly, I look at his legs. You're good. If you know what you're looking at, here's the key, court, key statement. If you know what you're looking at and you look at a fighter's legs, you can tell if it's there or if it's not there. You look yeah. at his time and reaction, you know what I mean? And you can say it's not there. Mentally, for him, it might be there. For all of us, it's, it might, I'm 55. Mentally, I think it's still there. But in reality, I know it's not. <laughs> so you, you, you really have to look at the fight. And if I felt that that's where he was, I'd have told him. I mean, I'm the type of guy, I tell any fighter that I work with, if I ever hand you a cigar, you know it's time to quit. <laughs> Has anyone ever taken it? No, they all begged me not to give him the cigar. But then I had one guy, he went and bought his own. He said, look, I beat you to it, buddy. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know of um, <clears throat> Yard's trainer, Tunde? Have you seen anything? Because he's quite outspoken, outrageous. Um, <clears throat> you know, he's made claims that Yard is, is better than Andre Ward. Do you pay any notice to any of that? Not really, no. I mean, he, is, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, he has all the confidence in himself in his fighter, which he should. Um, do I pay attention to it? No. You know, I, I focus on what I have to do. Yeah. So how are you going to manage the load? Because I imagine if you don't know what date the fight is, it's very hard to work out when Sergei needs to peak. And he's spoken before, I know he's spoken about it in Russia, that he feels under John David Jackson, he might have overtrained for certain fights and left his best performances in the gym. So how do you manage his training when you don't have a definite fight date yet? Well, what do we do is, you know, we just go up and down with the training. I mean, not too hard, not too light. Just... Steady, you know what I mean, until we find out something. 
And then then once we find out something, we gradually pick it up. Then once we get to where we need to be, we stay right there. We 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 don't overdo it. Um, so you employ some of the methods of the old school guys, where you start. Yes. Where where mostly, what, what do I see, as opposed to what's on the spreadsheet, if that makes sense. Exactly. I mean, I mean, in the old days, guys trained every day, so they get called for a fight. They they're already halfway in shape. And back when I was fighting, we was in the gym every day, with or without a fight. We was in the gym six days a week. So if you get called for a fight, say, four weeks away, you don't got to put your foot on the gas right away because you're halfway there already. Am I right in believing, buddy? You don't watch fight tapes. You don't do any, like, you don't watch what the opponent's doing. No. And why is that? I, I believe in preparing for any and everything. If you if you're in the, in in war and you prepare for one thing from the enemy and they don't do it, what happened? You shit out of luck. Excuse my language. <laughs> better yet, better yet, when Hannibal conquered Europe, they thought Hannibal the only way he could get across was through the by ocean, correct? And what did yeah. Hannibal do? He came through the Alps, and bam, it was a wrap. So, 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 you know, you just got to prepare for any and everything in war. And Hannibal was smart enough to use elephants. Where does Sergei rate among the fighters that you've trained in the past? I know there were some, like, incredible names that you worked with, Gatti, Malinaji, etc. Um, like, how, the, the Kovalev that you've kind of inherited and got hold of, where does he rank amongst those that you've worked with? He's smarter than most people give him credit for. You know, he does little moves in there, and I say, okay, do that again. And then he'll look at me like, all right, what did I just do? You know what I mean? He just does little things that, you know what I mean? It's like, wow. I mean, this guy can fight. Yeah. Do you involve yourself in his lifestyle? Because we've heard rumours of what his lifestyle might involve of outside of training, outside of the ring, the kind of, you know, whether he's a fan of, of vodka, who knows? Um, do you involve yourself in that? No. When a fighter leaves the gym, I tell him you're a grown man. <laughs> Is that I mean, a worry? I don't follow. No, I just, I don't believe that, you know what I mean? I should have to follow you home or make sure you don't do this, make sure you don't do that. Because what's going to happen is it's going to show in the gym. I mean, and then when I start seeing it, I'm going to say, listen, either it's going to be A or B. Yeah. I mean, they come in, if they're out drinking, you can smell it coming out of their pores. I mean, I've had <laughs> fighters come in, they come to the gym on Monday and say, buddy, look, I went out drinking this weekend. I'm like, all right, I respect your honesty. But you can see it, you can see it in their eyes, because if you're drinking Saturday, you damn sure drinking Sunday, hoping to sleep and then recoup by Monday, but it don't. So, you know, you are, uh, you know, but I've never, I mean, I've never had that problem. And there's been guys that I've trained that were world champions. I'm like, hey, coach, look, man, I went out over the weekend. I'm like, I respect that now. So you don't, you don't insist on a, you know, a monk's lifestyle. It's not that I insist on it. I just believe that you're a grown man. You know what you have to do. Yeah. And that would show me just how serious you really are. You know, I mean, I had a fighter. 
I can't mention it. I won't mention his name in this, but he had to have. He just had to have a girl near him all the time. He wouldn't, you know, he'd be, he was, he focused on his training. But the days that he sparred, if there was not a girl in the gym, he would get his ass kicked. <laughs> and he'd bring a girl to the gym, he was beating everybody up. And everybody's like, your buddy, man, you know, he got a girl. I'm like, hey, leave him alone. He knows what he got to do. He knows if he can't have a girl around him without touching her, then he's in the wrong, he's in the wrong business. But he's like, buddy, I'm not, I'm not messing around. I said, I understand, champ. He goes, but I, just, I said, I understand. Could be something mental. But if there, if he brought a girl to the gym, I look at the guys that were spawning and be like, good luck today. <laughs> 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 Especially on Friday when it was payday. I'd be like, double good luck today. <laughs> so what's the training set up with you and Sergey? Do you go to him or does he come to you? We, we mix it up. You know, I'm in, I'm a 30 minute drive from him. Okay. So some days he'd be like, I meet you, I meet you in Northridge. I'm like, cool. I mean, we mix still, it up. Do you still do, you know, is he doing the kind of road work and all the stuff? Cause he's a little bit older now, isn't he? It's, uh, does he have to look after the joints a little bit more? Yeah, he does that. You know, he does, he has a conditioning guy that has him do, doing different things. What? I don't know. Cause I don't ask. But, you know, he's feeling good, you know, and, uh, you know, he's not complaining about his joints or nothing. And, um, you know, sometimes with him, though, you have to make him slow down because he, he can get crazy and want to do more than he should, he should, he needs to do. So, okay. so, buddy, just to follow up on that, um, I think there's a split now if you look at sort of the, the boxing training world where there are some guys who say you shouldn't have a strength and conditioning guy and some guys that do. You came up under guys like Ray Arcel and Bowie Fisher. And, you know, which approach do you swing to in terms of what fighters should be doing for physical conditioning? I believe the strength and condition is a bunch of bull. <laughs> I just don't believe in it. I'm an old school guy. I don't believe in it. But if the fighter says, all right, buddy, it makes me better. All right, go ahead. Do I sit and watch them do that? Hell no. So I think it's all bull because my theory is this. At the end of the day, either you can fight or you can't. Yes. I mean, some guys, oh, man, I bench pressed 300 pounds. But he punches like a, like a, you know, you get a heavy, say you get a middleweight. He's all back. Oh, but I feel strong. Now I bench press this. So now he goes from a boxer thinking he's a puncher. And I'm like, hey, listen, man, that's because you can bench press 300 pounds. Don't mean you can punch. Being strong does not make you a puncher. I mean, what makes you a puncher, either you're born with it or you're not. So, so of the fighters you've trained, how many have had the arrangement that Kovalev has had, where he's had his own strength and conditioning guy, and how many have done that physical conditioning oh, under your uh 90% of them. But there'd be some fights, they'd be like, you know what, buddy, I'm not going to use the strength and conditioning guy. And I'd be like, thank God. I mean, but some of them now, it's gotten to the point now where Fighters feel they need it, so and, it, and it, mentally it messes with them. So you just say, "Okay, go ahead." You know what I mean? But sometimes you have to take the strength and conditioning guys and make them understand that's your job. I respect that, but that does not make you a boxing trainer. That's why when the fighter comes to you, I don't go. 
So when the fighter comes to me, if you come, sit down and let me do my job. I mean, there's been times I asked the strength and conditioning coach, what'd you make him do last night? Then he'll tell me, I says, well, he had the spar today, so his legs are killing him. So how about we do this? How about you call me and ask me what is he doing the next day before you work out with him? This way we're all on the same page. And, you know, I've had guys, they, you know, they were all on the same page with me, you know, but you get some strength and conditioning guys I've seen that they want to be the trainer as well. They want to take the trainer's job. And I've seen fighters listen to the strength and conditioning guy more than the trainer. And it's like, homeboy, you got to twist it. I mean, the strength and conditioning guy does his job. The trainer does his job. The manager does his job. The promoter does his job. Everybody should stay in their lane. How much of what you do as a trainer is influenced by how you were as a fighter? You know, it's not how I was as a fighter. It was what I was, I was taught. And my experience of being around such great trainers, man, you know, Ray Arcel, Bowie Fisher, Georgie Benton, Eddie Futch. I mean, you can't, you can't buy the knowledge that they gave me. You can't buy it. So I used to sit and pick their brains every chance I got. And then when I when they would tell me stuff, I would go back and try it as a fighter. I'm like, wow. You know what I mean? And then as when I became a trainer, I would pick their brains. I mean, are there still and, people? Are there still people you go to now that uh, you go and and pick their brains? You want to know the truth? There's 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 no one left. Yeah. There's no one left. I mean, today in boxing, the sad part about boxing today. Is that if a guy can hold mitts, people think he's a good trainer. I mean, I could teach my grandson how to hold mitts. I ain't going to make him a good trainer. But that's the problem today. You know what I mean? People believe that I can hold mitts. He can hold mitts good. He's a, I mean, I had a guy come to me and say, buddy, you know, I want you to train me. Only if you can hold mitts like Mayweather. I said, well, listen, check it out. The airport is 20 miles that way. Go get on a plane and go to Las Vegas. <laughs> So, buddy, in your career, when did you start using mitts? Because you trained, did you train with, I want to say, Dominique Brown, but I don't know if that's the original trainer. But who? you didn't used to use mitts, did you? Until you started, oh, who was it you started working with towards the end and you started to use mitts then? But it was all heavy bag work in your, yes. in your company. Yes, right? you believe I had over 30 fights before I even hit the mitts. And what difference <laughs> did you find that the mitts had for you? Honestly, nothing. Absolutely nothing. When I fought Simon Brown, which a lot of people say was my best fight, I didn't hit the mitts once. <laughs> Not once did I hit mitts. Because my manager was too old. And then the last week before the fight, this guy said to me, buddy, you should go get this guy to hold mitts for you. You'll be sharp. I said, I'm going to be fine, baby. Heavy bag and the double end bag. So do you use mitts with your lads? Yes, but I use mitts as mitts as a teaching process. Right. You know what I mean, I just don't go there and get fancy. No, I'm teaching you something. I'm showing you something. Because when you really think about the mitts, it's choreography. It's choreographed. If you don't tell a guy what to do, he can't do it because you got to hold the mitts, correct? Yeah. But now you put them on the heavy bag. 
And I say, okay, set the heavy bag up for this combination. Now you got to set up the heavy bag. You got to figure that out. Now you got to think. Now say, set them up for this combination, but you got to have the distance. You got to get the right distance. Now the fighters got to think now. On the mitts, I'm giving you the distance because I got to stand there for you to hit me. So you're not, you're not figuring out your distance. You know I'm going to be there. But on the heavy bag, now you got to figure out the distance now. So I tell my guys, when you're hitting that heavy bag, view that as your opponent, not just as a heavy bag. And then I said, okay, give me this combination. Give me that combination. What would you do after you did that combination? And then look at me. That's your opponent right there. What would you do after that? So, I mean, it's called, it's called you know, classes in session. You know, the mitts are cool and fancy and all that, but I use the mitts to correct things and, and as a learner, not to, get, not to be fancy. That's not me. And when the guys hit the heavy bag, I stand, I sit right there. I get me a chair, sit down right next to the heavy bag, and I tell them what to do. And sometimes they say, well, how do I do this? Set it up. Set it up. If you're in a fight, I can't call time out and tell you how to do, show you how to do it. Let's go. <laughs> right or wrong? No, absolutely. And I also yeah. remember, if you remember the, the, the Meldrick Taylor fight that you had, and they yeah. had the video, and if you watch when he's doing his drills, it's so much different to how pads are used now. You can see you know, the three guys around him, and there's a, there's a two-way dialogue, and it, 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 it actually looks more of a teaching process than it does now. Yeah, but now it's all fancy. Everybody wants to be fancy. It's cool for the cameras. You know what I mean? But in reality, you use that man as a, as a learning tool. You know what I'm saying? You take that and come and teach you this, and then you go here, you go that, and then make you do it over and over until you get it right. Then say, okay, now let's get on the heavy bag, do the same combination, but your distance has to be right. You have to have the right distance with the jab, with your feet, and now let's get it. Let's get it going. And they look at me like I got two heads. So I tell them, if a fat old man can do it, you can do it. And that's that's how I do it, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, the Mets, you know, that's my opinion on the Mets. So your Hall of Fame induction, buddy, is coming up. Yes. <laughs> what does that mean to you as a, you know, a fighter, a man, a trainer? It, 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 to me, it just shows that, you know, uh, I belong. You know what I mean? Thanks to the fans. Uh, they appreciate all the work I've done over the years as a fighter, and and um, so I uh, I um, I really appreciate everyone who voted me in, and and uh, I want I'd like to thank them all. And and one of the things people don't realize, and I think we're in an era now, buddy, where people try and protect that that owe at all costs and try and remain undefeated for as long as possible. Am I right in thinking you drew your amateur debut and you drew your pro debut as well, and you still went yeah. on to make the fame? Yes, I, I'm gonna hit my first amateur fight. Uh, it's February 21st, 1976. I fought a kid named Ricky Randazzo, and it was uh, a draw. And then my first pro fight was against Lamont Hayes coach, March 2nd, 1982, and that was a draw. And, and you uh, still made the Hall of Fame. So I guess it goes to show that, you know, ability and talent are ultimately what get you over the line. 
Ability and talent. Well, you said? Yeah, yeah just ability yeah. and talent to get you over yeah. the line. Yes. No, to, like you, 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 you hit it right on the head about records. You know, people talk about a fighter's record. Because the guy's undefeated doesn't make him a good fighter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sugar Robinson, Sugar Robinson lost. But, but a good example in your career, I guess, is Roger Brown, right? You lost to Roger Brown in the Empire State Games in 1980. And wow, um, you got that. You remember, you did your homework, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then when it came time to face him as a pro, you know, you did your thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean, it's just you know, I mean, t- today is different. Boxing is so much different today that. To be honest with you, man, I don't even watch boxing like I used to. I couldn't even tell you half the champions today. And there was a time I'd be in front of that TV. You, if you knew there was boxing on TV, you know where to find me. Now, I'm like, eh. And people are like, why you didn't see the fight? I'm like, listen, today, let's be real now. When the guys get in the ring, all you have to do is look and see who's standing in whose corner and you know who's going to win. Right or wrong? Pretty much now, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> but, but on that subject of protecting records, <coughs> just go back to, to the Frankie Warren fight because that was obviously your first defeat. And I think... Just, just through guys that I know in the sport now, I'm seeing a lot of guys going through that process of their first defeat as well. And it seems to be a watershed moment for a lot of guys because it's, yeah. it, it, it seems to combine a number of elements of, you know, it humbles you and then it makes you review, you know, was I training hard enough? Have I got the right setup around me? Where can I make improvements? So what was the process after that first Frankie Warren fight? It, it made me a better fighter. I, um, after the fight, uh, everybody around me was upset. You know, family, my managers, you know what I mean? Only one person I can honestly wasn't upset was a guy, he's a promoter, his name's Murad Muhammad. He said, champion, don't worry about it, champion. i never forget, he said, champion, don't worry about it. He gave me a hug. So we get out of the arena. And I told everybody, I'm going to walk back to the hotel by myself. I don't want nobody to go with me. And I walked that mile from the arena to the hotel. When I got to the hotel, the first thing I said to my manager was, get me another fight. I put it behind me. I realized what I did wrong. And I said, I'm going to go home for the rest of a couple of weeks, and I'm going to get back to the drawing board. And that's what I did. That fight was in July. My next fight was in September. I fought Saul Mamby, who was a former world champion. Was that the fight where, was it Saul Mamby who hit you with the body shot and basically said to you, you know, you're not going to win by stoppage today. Just calm down. He said, he said slow your young ass down. <laughs> <laughs> he hit me in the liver and I, I, I peed on myself, man. Wow. I mean, but and let me tell you, how old was he I, in that fight? I was 22. He was and 39. He was yeah. He was 39 years old. But when he hit me, he hit me like he was 19 years old. And I was like, damn. And I got in the clinch. He slow your young ass down. I'm like, okie dokie. Out of chokey, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I got a little beside myself. I went in for the KO. I said, I'm going to get him out of here. 
He had different yeah. plans. Because there were points where you were really unloading with those double right hooks. I think that's what you wanted to get him out with, right? It was those yes, double right hooks to the body and to after, the head. After Seven. he hit me with that, you didn't see no more double hooks. <laughs> <laughs> you saw left jabs in boxing. But after that fight, I said, no one's going to beat me. After that fight, I said, no one's going to beat me. Because I learned so much in that one fight with him. Because he was, man, he was, he wasn't the best fighter I fought, but he was the smartest. He was the best. I go with Pinnell. Yeah. Was he? Smartest, sound man be hands down. Was Pinnell everything that we now think of him as? You know, Pinnell was a hell of a fighter, but what made Pinnell even better was Georgie Benton. A lot of people overlooked that, man. <laughs> Am I right in thinking you have a Georgie Benton curse? Because is it four or five of your losses have come to Benton trained fighters, right? Yes, but you want to hear something? Me and Georgie are great friends. God bless him. He's dead now. Me and Georgie were great friends. Before the second Pinnell fight, he came to my room like three hours before the fight. And gave me a fancy hat to wear. I mean, George, man, I love, God bless, I love George. I mean, after the first Frankie Warren fight, he told me what I did wrong. When we got the rematch, we was at a press conference. I said, hey, George, he said, what's up, buddy? I said, uh, remember what you told me I did wrong? He's like, yeah. I said, I corrected it this time. He just looked at me. And his favorite word was motherfucker. Yeah, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, motherfucker, we're going to see, motherfucker. I said, all right, George. So I'm telling you, George, I'm going to get your ass this time. We'll see, motherfucker. And then after the first Pinnell fight, he said, hey, motherfucker, come here. He gave me a hug. He goes, you almost ruined my masterpiece. He called Pinnell his masterpiece. He said, you almost ruined my masterpiece. I mean, but he used to always tell my mother, God bless her, he used to always tell my mother, please let me train your son. He goes, I know you're the only one that can get your son to come to me. He goes, if I train your son, he'd be undefeated. Georgie, I loved him, man. He was a great guy, man. Great, great, great guy, man. A great, 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 great trainer and teacher. The great fighter as well. Yes, he was a great teacher. And people ask me, why didn't he fight for the title? People don't know that Georgie got shot when he was young. Right when he was coming up the ladder to fight for the title, he got shot. I mean, it kind of, you know, his career kind of went south after that. You know what I mean? But he was, he was, he was, Georgie was the man, man. I mean, and then, you know, him and Eddie Futch, also geniuses, man. I just never, go ahead. I was going to say, just the depth in that that sort of learning process. Because I think for for the listeners, you know, you're you're dropping just a lot of knowledge today. And one of the things I don't think people realize is the way you guys came up way back when in the early '80s. But you know, it was the was it the Felt Forum where you cut pretty much cut your teeth. You know, yes. really got those learning fights. Yes. And what was that like? Because it's, it's when I was in New York, you know, those stories were almost mythical. You know, the people who fought there and some of the fights that happened at the Felt Forum. Man, you know what? You can't really explain it, but every Thursday night, everybody in boxing, especially the old-timers, they had one little area they would always sit. 
You can give them a ringside ticket. They was not sitting in their seat. There was one one corner of, of the film forum where they all sat every fight. So if you wanted to learn anything, you were going. It wasn't. It was behind the ringside. Matter of fact, it was behind the barricades. And you would sit there. You could see the fights good, but all the old timers from Times Square and Gleason's gym, all the trainers, fighters, man, they all sat right there. And you could sit there and talk all the crap you want and learn so much. And if and if you was an outsider and bought a ticket and you came there with your ticket, the people would say, look, sit wherever. And you could say, this is my seat. No, it's not your seat. That guy got your seat. So either you sit here or you go someplace else. Because these old guys, man, they were, I mean, you just had so many good trainers out of New York. You know who was a hell of a trainer? It was an old guy named Lee Black. Lee Black's son was the lead singer of the group Cameo. Uh, Lee Black was, oh man, um, there's a guy, Bernard Forbes, who trained uh, Mark McDowell. He was Emil Griffith's cousin. My God, hell of a trainer. I mean, uh, Victor Machado. I mean, there's just so, so many guys. Man, it's not like that no more. You know what I mean? All the trainers back then would say, hey, can you watch my fighter when I go out? You have no problems with your fighter. You do that today, forget about it. The fighter's going to think you're the enemy. You know what I mean? But there's, 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 I want to say this before I forget. There's one thing I, one important thing I learned from Joe. They said, buddy, always remember this. A guy cannot punch and block punches at the same time. <laughs> and that was the strategy to me having Antonio beat Roy Jones. <laughs> Said he can't punch and block punch at the same time. So when he starts to punch, you punch. And you also solved the Roy Jones problem in some senses as well, because Roy liked to loop with the right hand, and you'd watch yeah. Tava just shooting a straight left into that space. But you know who had the real strategy to f before anybody? I'm guessing you really Eddie think fight. about it. There you go. In the first Montel Griffith fight. Yeah. Montel was beating Roy. But then he messed up. He lost focus for one split second. And once you lose focus for the Roy, young Roy Jones, brother, you can cancel Christmas. <laughs> I was at that fight. And Montel was giving him fits. I mean, and then he lost concentration, got hit with that left hook, and after that, Roy hit him with like 20 more punches, and it was a wrap. But it's a rare skill, though, that, that ability to break down rhythm, which is rare, isn't it? Where, where you, you see guys like Floyd and so forth, and they, they fight in this rhythm, and trainers don't seem to know how to get their fighters to, to disrupt that rhythm and make them uncomfortable. You know what, you sure you didn't fight before because you hit it right on the head? I mean, I told guys, if you stand in front of a guy and you and him are looking at each other and there's nothing happening, walk away. Now he's got to get reset, and when he gets reset, that's when you crack him. You know why you're walking away. He don't know why you're walking away. When you walk away just a little bit, and then when he goes to get reset, then you crack him. 
George Joe Walcott was the master at that. And they sit in front of you, faint, faint, then walk away from you. You react, you throw a slow jab, he's coming right over the top. I mean, to this day, I still study those old fighters. And I come to the gym, and there's some fighters I can teach it to, and other fighters that, you know, they have different styles. All right. What was Isaac Chilemba like to work with? You know, Isaac was great to work with. The only thing was that he was just so stuck on Roy Jones. And he wanted to be Roy Jones so bad. I'm like, Isaac, there's only one Roy Jones, baby. I'm not trying to change your style. I'm trying to make you understand that you're not going to win all these fights fighting like Roy Jones. You know what I mean, but he's a hard worker. Uh, I love him. I love the kid. Great guy. You know what I mean, but he just loved. I mean, he just wanted to be Roy so, so, so bad, so bad that you know when he shadow box, when he hit. I mean, everything. I was like, yo, you must really love Roy. He goes, yep. I mean, if you tell him to go home and study a tape, he's studying Roy Jones. That's it. And there was a couple of fights at the time. Look, we can't be Roy Jones this fight. And he would listen. I got to give him that now. He would listen. I know he didn't like it, but I'm like, yo, if you want to win this fight, this is what you got to do. And he did it, and, you know, he, I mean, listen, I have nothing bad to say about him. Great young man. When you look back at those Bellew fights, I suppose the result of those has gotten better over time. Well, the first fight, he fought sick, but we got the draw. Second fight, his body was in England, but his mind was in El Segundo somewhere. I don't know where the hell his mind was. <laughs> his mind was, and he admitted afterwards, he goes, I just, I don't know where my mind was. I'm like, I know where it wasn't. It wasn't here. But I saw it in the dressing room warming up. I looked at the cut man. I said, it's going to be a long night. He goes, what do you mean? I said, his mind is not there. He goes, you, you're serious? I'm like, you see? And Baloo just bullied him. Yeah. It was a mugging, really. Do you miss the old school boxing, buddy? You sat, you talk about it with like yes. great love and respect. It yes. sounds like you wish yes. it was still like it was. Yes. Yes, it was. I mean, I mean, when you really think back, you know, I mean, you know, even in England, you guys had a bunch of hell of a fighters, man. I mean, and then you look at it today, it's like, eh. I know you guys are from England, so you might not say it, but think about it, man. Think of the guys that came out in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. You know what I mean? It was, and there was no problem with, you know, American fighter going over there winning. Or losing, you know, it was uh, um, it was amazing. But I got a funny thing to tell you. Growing up in New York, you know, you hear about people from England, but you don't really know them. The first two fighters I met from England was Frank Bruno and Lloyd Hannigan. That's a good they, two. They were in training camp. I'll never forget. I was in training camp with... Uh, I was... Uh, Sprung with Mustafa Hamshaw, who's engrossing us in New York. 
And a lot of people don't know this. Back then, Frank Bruno was sparring a 16-year-old Mike Tyson. Oh. Wow. There was an old trainer, Francis. That's George Francis? Yes. Yes, George Francis had Lloyd Hannigan there, and he had uh, Frank Bruno there. Frank Bruno's sparring partner. You ready? Young Joe Lewis, Jeff Sims, and uh, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson lived in, in the Catskills. So, um, uh, what's his trainer's name? Kevin Rooney used to drive him up to Gross Singers. And he used to spar Frank Bruno when he was 16 years old. And that would have been early into Frank's professional career as well, I imagine, if Michael Tyson, 16, 83. Ty, yeah. This is, this is 1983. Lord Hannigan was up there. i never forget Lord Hannigan. He had a baseball cap on with his head, his name on the hat. He was flashy then. I mean, they used to train at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I remember like it was yesterday, man. No, I'm lying. Michael Springs trained at 5. They trained at like, like 2 or 3 o'clock. Michael Springs trained at 5 o'clock. I mean, and I was then I heard them talk, and I was like, "Holy crap, where are they from?" They said England. I'm thinking like New England, you know, up up in Boston area. <laughs> they said, "They said my manager said no, you jackass. They're from the country England." Because <laughs> I was like, "Hey, man, they got a funny accent," you know what I mean? And uh, he's like, "Yeah, because they're from England." I'm like, "In Boston?" He's like, "No, you idiot. They're from the country." I'm like, "They way over here to train." He's like, "Yeah." They came to Grossinger's Resort. I'll never forget. So did you do any work and, with? Hold it. I'm sorry. Lord Quick Tillis. Quick Tillis was there. Ah, James Tillis. And Quick Tillis. And we used to play cards every night. Me, Quick Tillis, Jeff Sims, and young Joe Lewis. See, my memory's not that bad for no man. <laughs> So when is your uh, when is your Hall of Fame induction, buddy? When you got that coming up? It's June sixth to the ninth. Awesome. And do you know who's uh, doing it yet? It's going to be in Canastota at the Hall of Fame. Uh, I mean, the guy's Ed Brophy, uh, but I think a guy named Don Ackerman Ackerman you know, does all the introductions and presents you with the ring. I could be wrong. Find out in the night. Hey, so, let me ask you guys a question. What is Lloyd Hannigan doing now, man? Um, so I bump into Lloyd every so often. So he lives in southeast London, and you will occasionally see him in a full-length fur coat with a big fedora hat and the cane. So still? Yes, yeah, still. It might be the same one. I'm not sure. <laughs> the last time I saw Lloyd... I saw him about three years ago at a film premiere, and yeah, he was just sat out in the foyer of the cinema in a full-length fur coat, <laughs> fedora hat, and he had the stick with him as well, man. He was uh, sunglasses indoors. He had the lot. How's you Frank Bruno doing, man? Uh, he's he's always on a roller coaster, I think, Frank. He's um, uh, he's very, very hot on mental health. Issues he suffered with them himself. He's got a charity right. going on. Um, That's great. So, look, the, the the public over here will love Frank forever. Um, well, give her, if you ever see him, give him my love. 
No doubt. Yeah. Will do. Frank and was, he's also Frank he's, and George Francis were great back then. Because he had a Frank Bruno boxing academy. I don't know if that's still going, but I used to train a couple of guys that used to go there. So Frank's still involved in boxing, uh, which is good. And the thing is, he's still in shape. He still looks like he can go. Wow, I believe that. He was he was a big dude. But I'm going to tell you who, a trainer you guys had. He just passed away recently. But I met him in New York, and he, he loved me. He knew like half my career, over half my career. And that's Mr. Brendan Eagle. Eagle, Eagle. Yeah. Great man, great trainer. You know what I mean? Uh, when he had Prince Lassine, there was training in New York for the Kevin Kelly fight. And Michael Jackson came to the gym, and oh, my God. <laughs> it was Brendan Eagle. Eagle. His last name is Eagle, correct? Yes. Yeah. Great man, and he would allow me in the gym every day to watch Prince Nassim train. One day, the gym owner tried to ask me to leave, and Mr. Engel said, no, buddy stays. I mean, great man. Great. God bless him. May he rest in peace. I mean, great man. Great man. Yeah, his, his, son, his son Dominic is uh, training now. Oh, great. Dominic Engel. Um, so he's trained Billy Joe Saunders, for instance. Good fighter. Yeah, fighting tonight. But he is? Yeah, for uh, super middleweight WBO title. Oh, who's he fighting? Oh, some German. Uh, is Sufi oh. something like that? It's, it's not very good. Right. But he could fight Billy Joe, man. Yeah. He could fight. He could fight. Well, well I wish him the best, man. Who, who's the one fighter you'd have loved to have worked with, buddy? Wow. Great question. Ah, oh, man. You know what? I'm, I, I honestly say that. There's a lot out there. I can't think of one right now. You want to know why? I'll be 100% honest with you. In my mind and in my eyes, I had two of the best fighters ever. And the world never got to see their full potential. And that was Vernon Forrest and Antonio Targo. Yeah. The, Vernon was so good that he didn't have to use his full potential. God bless him. He didn't have to use his full potential. Same with Targo. The world's never really seen Targo's full potential. I mean, you know, after he knocked out Roy, everyone said, okay, you know, they were always looking for him to knock people out. But Tava can put you in situations where you'd be like, hold on, am I fighting one guy or two guys? He was beautiful <laughs> at setting traps. And so, quick, quick one on that one. Did you have Tava when he fought Clinton Woods? No. I was there, but I didn't have him. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, I, which is what I thought. Because, yeah, that wasn't the Tava that we saw do damage to Roy Jones when he fought Clinton Woods. Right. And then, uh, and then when he fought Danny Green, I wasn't training, but he called me like the week before the fight. He's like, I need you over here for this fight. I'm like, well, when you need me, he goes like yesterday. So I flew over to Australia. And he says, what should I do in the first round? I said, walk right at him and crack him. <laughs> and he walked right at Danny Green, hit him. And he went down, but they said it wasn't a knockdown. But after that, Danny Green didn't put no pressure on him. And then Tarver wound up stopping him. I mean, but Tarver, Vernon and Tarver, I'm telling you, those guys had so, so much talent. 
that you had to be a real boxing person to see that. I mean, people used to come to my gym just to watch Vernon Forrest shadow box. I mean, oh, the man was unbelievable. So on a Tyler-related question, did he ever really get Roy Jones out of his soul? Because they grew up pretty much as rivals from kids. I think it was like the Florida State games where they yes. first met each other. So from like 13, they were always destined to be rivals. So did he ever make peace with that? Or was that always something oh, yes. that got to him? Oh, yes. Well, you know, you know, he, um, after the, before the first fight, you know, he was, you know, and then after, after the first fight, he's like, oh, buddy, man, you know, I just can't get a break, blah, blah, blah. Then he got the rematch. I said, now's the time for you to do what you got to do. So then after the rematch and then the third fight, he was happy. He was, as far as I, I saw. But you want to know when I knew he was going to beat Roy Jones? He was driving in the car one day and he said, you know, man, I beat Roy in the basketball game. I said, I got only I got the better fight. I got the better athlete. That's going to be it. I mean, and because I know Roy loves basketball and Roy could play. And when Tarver told me he beat him in basketball, I said to myself, shit, this is a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. There's little things you look for, you know. Uh, something I wanted to ask, and I'm conscious that you probably got time constraints, but wanted to touch on the Gatti years. But before that, can I just ask a question? Did you ever encounter Mickey Ward when you were boxing? Because I think there's only a year difference between you, right? No, I never fought Mickey, but we fought on the same court in 1986. <laughs> and, then, and then you wind up training the guy that goes on to beat him two out of three. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was the main event and we fought February 1986 in Atlantic City. What were the Gatti years like? It was great. I mean, we had a lot of fun. Um, that's basically all I can say. It was great, man. We had a, we had a good time. We had a good run. And then, unfortunately, you know, we, we didn't end up on good terms. But, uh, you know, that's boxing. But t talk us through Gatti Ward 1. And the reason I say that is, that was probably the last fight in the United Kingdom that was literally word of mouth viral. So they showed it at a really obscure time on a Friday night. It's a throwaway okay. fight for boxing fans. And we were all messaging each other halfway through that fight saying, if you're a boxing fan, you need to be watching it. And you know, then I was a little... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Now go ahead, finish your question. Yeah. So this buzz grows throughout Britain to the point where the BBC had to show it twice. And so it became this, this yeah, it became this, this cult classic of a fight between two guys who we thought their careers were going nowhere, but then conspired to give us probably one of the greatest tales of just human ability to overcome struggle. Yeah. The what first was like fight in the corner. Man, listen, you can't explain it, but I do remember one thing in the first fight. Arturo hit Mickey with like a five-punch combination. And Mickey slammed his gloves together and said, fuck. And when he did that, I said, oh, my God. <laughs> We're in trouble tonight. <laughs> and then when Arturo got knocked out from the body shot, 
Arturo came back to the corner. When he sat down, he was crying. He was literally crying. And then I had the doctor talking to me in Italian. See, that was all the confusion in the corner. And then the referee, like, what's going on, buddy? Uh, like, I don't speak Italian. <laughs> you know, the doctor's talking to Arturo in Italian, talking to me in Italian. I'm like, I don't know what the hell he's saying. I don't know if he did it to buy time, whatever the case may be, but it worked. And then he came, he st- you know, I said, look, I'm going to stop it. He goes, I'm okay. I said, I stand up. And he stood up. He goes, I'm okay, coach. But I could see the tears coming down his, his face. And then he went out and won the 10th round. And then here we go now. You ready for this one? For the rematch, you know what he said? I'm not running on the treadmill anymore. I'm going to go outside and run the road the old school way. I said, thank you very much, sir. <laughs> and then the second fight, you know, you seen how, you know, how that went. Then the third fight, we went through camp with a half-broken hand. And he was doing okay with his hand until he hit him on the hip. And broke it again, but he managed to uh, he managed to win that one. But I personally believe that, you know, after that, no, no, I'm gonna rephrase that, because after that he won the title, then he beat Leha, and then Duran, then he fought Floyd, and after that he was never the same. It was a savage. Be- it was a savage beating that he took from. It wasn't Ed. the same before the fight. The fight itself was, just was the icing on the cake. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was just the icing on the cake. You know, I think that by the time he fought, right before he fought Floyd, I think I know. I don't think I know that the trilogy caught up to him. Not that he would have beat Floyd. He wouldn't have beat Floyd anyway. But it caught up to him because I could see his training habits change drastically. Yeah, I mean, one day he wanted to train at six in the morning. Another day he wanted to train at seven at night. Another day let's train at ten in the morning. I'm saying to myself, it's like a roller coaster. I mean, it's a roller coaster here, you know. And I know I'm like, I mean, people actually I think he's gonna win. Yeah, I mean, of course I'm gonna say that, but. I mean, I can see that, you know, that uh, it caught up to him. Did you ever see Floyd Sr. at the at the felt? I know he boxed there, maybe once or twice. I'm not, never really sure, but I know Floyd Sr. definitely boxed. Yes, he fought a kid felt. by the name, he beat a kid by the name of Jose the Threat Barrett. Floyd Sr. beat him. I watched the fight. I didn't go to the felt form that, but I watched it on the Madison Square Garden Network, and Floyd Sr. beat the hell out of him. Yeah, I, I kid, saw that. The kid never fought no more. He never fought no more after that. And I think people forget Floyd Sr. could be a bad, bad man when he wants to Oh, yeah, he could fight. You know what I mean? So, Floyd could fight. Floyd Sr. could fight. You know what I mean? So, I, uh... I, I believe that uh, if DeRay Leonard wasn't around, uh, Floyd could have been champion. No, no, you know what? I'm not even going to say it. I'm lying. 
there was too many great welterweights out there. Floyd Senior was a good fighter, but there was too many. I mean, you had uh, oh my god, we had Tommy Hearns. I mean, and I think if it wasn't Ray Leonard, was if there was no Ray Leonard, I believe Tommy Hearn dominates. And and hold on, let me forget. Don't forget you have Roberto Duran. I mean, so uh, Floyd Senior wouldn't have beaten no Duran. I mean, I mean Floyd Senior was like Roger. They were good pitchers, but not good catchers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they could pitch their ass up, but when they started, when the ball started flying back at them, they wasn't good catches. <laughs> but they both, I will say this though, they both are hell of a trainers. I got to give them that. I mean, I really, I really give them that. I got, I can't say nothing. But as fighters, they were good fighters. But like I said, they could, they could catch, they could pitch. When the ball started coming back, it was a different ball game. So, so, buddy, what do you think is the Mayweather secret? Because I know people talk about the shoulder roll, but the shoulder roll's been there for for generations. Okay. It, it can't I'm, just be the shoulder I'm, roll. There must be something I, else. You know what the secret is? The secret is basics. Look at it now. Take away the shoulder roll. What else does Floyd? What else does Mayweather do that's special? Besides his hand speed, what else does he do? Not much. Thank you. See, everybody was so caught up on the shoulder roll that they forgot to look at the basics. And that's all he would do. Jab, jab, right hand. Now he fought every listen, he fought everybody out there that was around. Canelo, Cotto, everybody. I give him that. Delahoy, I give him that. He fought everybody that was out there. And everyone's trying to defuse the shoulder roll. But just saying, you know what? Just let me stick to the damn basics. I mean, I believe they all fought him wrong. I mean, I mean, he had hell of a hand speed. But sometimes you have to take a guy out of their comfort zone. Do, do you think he struggled against left-handed orthodox guys? Because that's always been my theory. Guys like Cotto and De La Hoya. Always seemed to give Floyd trouble on that right hand side of his. Where okay, why? Because they was using what a left jab, left hand jab. Yeah, basics. <laughs> Nothing beats the basics, man. And people have a tendency of getting away from the basics. Everybody wants to be flashy. They want to do this, want to do that. Keep it simple. Joe Lewis, one of the greatest heavyweight champions ever, kept it basic. He could punch. You know what I mean? But if you really watch it, he was basic. But if he caught you, one thing, he was one of the greatest finishers ever, though, Joe Lord. Because if he caught you, baby, it was a wrap. I mean, now, Roberto Duran, on the other hand, was just, to me, Duran was special, man. If you really, really watch a young Roberto Duran, he was special, man. Defensively, offensively, Unbelievable. I mean, if Duran was fighting today, he'd be a trillionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, buddy, I'm conscious of time. We've taken up an hour of your day. Um, That's okay. No problem, man. And my man, we appreciate that. 
hugely. Uh, and I know Terry would have a million more questions to ask you as well. No problem. Rachel already threatened me twice already. So, uh, listen, buddy. I'll be honest. At some point, I'm coming out to see you guys, man. I, I, I need right. to I need to drain. I need to drain the wisdom in person. <laughs> okay, no problem, man. Anytime. It'd be my pleasure. Oh, fantastic. We appreciate okay, listen, it so I much, gotta, buddy. Hold, on, I got one trivia question before you guys get off the farm. Oh wow. <laughs> okay, you ready? Shoot. Name a fighter. He knocked out a fighter, right? And 20 years later, knocked out the father in the same ring in the same round. Wow. Wait, say that again? I'm confused. He knocked out a fighter, right? <laughs> yeah. And 20 years later, he knocked out no, he knocked out the son in the same ring in the same round. No. Uh, no, no, I haven't got that one. All right, think about that until I speak to you guys again. <laughs> but hey, uh, but I'm going to tell you this, though. It's not Archie Moore. Shit, right, we'll have to think about it. Yeah, think about it. And you know what? I'll have Rachel call you guys next week. I'll give you the answer. Anyone that listens <laughs> to this. Okay, now listen. It could have been, I'm going to make it easier. It could have been between 15 and 20 years later. But he knocked out the sun in the same ring in the same round. Wow. I give it to you. I give it to you. It was Jersey Joe, Jersey Joe Walcott. He knocked out Phil Johnson, then knocked out his son, Harold Johnson. Oh, wow. That's some all, all black guys. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Look, buddy, it's an absolute pleasure, and thank you so, so much. And and, to Rachel for, as uh, as my man, Only Harrison, would say, you get me? <laughs> he's always say that you get me I said you got you because <laughs> did you train all day huh did you I train, train all day yes I trained all day and it was a lot of fun training all day because they'd be talking you get me I'm like you got you because I understand what you're saying you get me you get me so now but every time I see him I say you get me <laughs> good guy though I had a, I, all he's a good guy did you work with any other Brits? Sorry, we're now overrunning, but did you work with any other Brits apart from Audley? Uh, um, he was Irish, but he lived in Birmingham. Macklin. There you go. What was and, he uh, like? It was good. It was good. And then the next guy lived in Liverpool. Paul Smith. <laughs> huh. oh, Britain's favorite boxer. <laughs> I mean, Paul, Paul Smith. I mean, yep. Matter of fact, we won when I fought when I trained Paul. He won the Britain middleweight championship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I met Paul on the shoulder contender. Oh, that's right. I met him on the contender, and you want to know what got him into that show? He doesn't even know. We was all in the office one day. And we heard somebody hitting a heavy bag with left foot. We don't know if it was left foot. Let me rephrase that. We heard someone hitting a heavy bag. And Sugar Leonard said, who the hell is hitting the bag that damn hard? We walked outside, and who was it? Paul. He was hitting the bag like he cursed his mother or something. I don't know. But he was cracking left hooks on it. And they're like, yo, we gotta, he's got to make it. So, what year was that? About 2009? 
Yeah, wrong there. Yeah. If you ask me the year, you got me on that one. <laughs> I'd be lost. Must have been around then. I'm sure that's when he fought Quigley, wasn't it? No, I don't know. But I just know Rachel's giving me the finger right now. She said, you guys, <laughs> she said, you guys are taking all the power out of her battery. <laughs> okay, no, no, no. In that case, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> we can't deny a woman of the power of uh, the yes. phone battery. <laughs> Look, yeah, I bought a Dunkin' Donuts. Now she's ready to leave now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so all much, right, again. Fellas. We wish you all the best with the Hall of Fame induction. It's brilliant. Yeah, congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Thank You're you, top man. Thank you very I much. Bye-bye.